Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if I had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. Robert Frost For this podcast, I know I said I'd stick to the Wild West and slowly venture to other parts of the world. But here I am, breaking my own rules. Today's historical account, set in Saint-Pierre-Martinique, was just far too surreal and outlandish to give the go-by. The end of times has always felt nearby, especially when you're raised Catholic. Like the idea it could come at any minute is pervasive throughout your life. Even the incessant news cycle hits you like a thousand cuts, proclaiming all that can and does go wrong. I think we can all agree, it can get pretty bleak. On the surface, Robert Frost's poem, Fire and Ice, ponders how the world will end, ablaze or locked in a frozen tundra. But at its core, fire represents destructive desire and ice as a hatred so deep, it could kill all living things. First published in 1920, his words still resonate, now more than ever. We can take our best guess as to how we'll meet our end, by our own hands full of desire and hate, or something unforeseen. To quote Dr. Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, life finds a way even in the harshest conditions and when all seems lost. Today's story demonstrates Dr. Malcolm's theory, even if how we survive is a little absurd. I'm Kate Naglieri. Welcome to the Bygone Society Show. On May 8, 1902, Mont Pele, an active volcano that formed the north end of the island of Martinique, erupted, engulfing the city of Saint-Pierre in superheated gas, ash, and rock in just three minutes. The swift and sudden explosion would turn out to be the deadliest in the 20th century. Saint-Pierre was the cultural and economic mecca of the entire island, and was commonly referred to as the Paris of the Caribbean. Leading up to the cataclysmic eruption, its leaders ignored the temporal signs that Montpellier was fuming and impatiently waiting to unleash. Of the nearly 30,000 inhabitants, only three survived. A young girl, Javivra da Ifril, a man who lived at the edge of the city, Léon Comper Leandre, and a prisoner, known around the world as the man who survived Doomsday. The prisoner's well-timed crime would place him in solitary confinement, which was a single-cell, bomb-proof room with stone walls built partially underground, 
only a narrow grate on the door exposed him to the outside world. But within 24 hours, his prison became his sanctuary, shielding him from the red-hot pyroclastic flow that wiped the city clean. The death of tens of thousands was precursored by deep groans from within the volcano's crater, accompanied by eruptive activity two weeks leading up to the fatal blast. A thin layer of ash rained down on the countryside, deceiving those who lived outside the city to seek refuge in Saint-Pierre. Animals sensed what humans could not. Ants, birds, snakes, and other creatures started making their way down the mountain toward the shore as the earth beneath them trembled. Fish rose to the surface belly up from the changes in water temperature, pH level, and oxygen and carbon dioxide values as gases and minor explosions bubbled below sea. At the time, modern volcanology was just beginning. People the world over believed volcanoes were connected to the whims and emotions of spirits and deities. Measurable signs of an impending eruption were otherwise unknown. At 8.02 in the morning, on May 8, 1902, Mont 1,000-degree red-hot innards rushed toward the established and populated streets of Saint-Pierre at more than 100 miles per hour. By 8.05, the city and all its walls, churches, homes, and ports were flattened, and its inhabitants incinerated instantaneously. Of the three survivors, Havivra escaped by boat to a nearby cave where she and her friends played pirates. Here's what she saw firsthand. Before I got there, I looked back, and the whole side of the mountain, which was near the town, seemed to open and boil down on the screaming people. I was burned a good deal by the stones and ashes that came flying about the boat, but I got to the cave. Little is known about the second survivor, Leon Comper Leandre, but many guess he somehow made it to the ocean before the river of fire caught up to him. And the third survivor, Auguste Siparis, a 28-year-old Martinetian who worked as a laborer, escaped Montpellier's wrath thanks to sheer dumb luck. His first-hand account can be found in the Wide World magazine titled Buried Alive in Saint-Pierre, which was published in 1903, one year after the explosion. Here's his account of how he escaped the fiery inferno. On the night of May 7th, Auguste went to pick up his sweetheart, Julie Richard, for dinner at the City Hall Plaza. On his way there, he noted the earth moaning and trembling slightly underfoot. But to the island's inhabitants, this didn't seem threatening. In fact, the activity piqued their curiosity. August writes, quote, The black shroud of the mountain hid its summit from us. The world was very dusty, but still very fair to live in. As the volcano boiled, August grew increasingly jealous over Julie during their dinner. He accused her of flirting with others in the crowd, and to this, Julie barked back and said, Don't try to rule me. I won't have it. Auguste's jealousy quickly turned to rage. He slapped Julie on the ear, 
which led to a brawl between him and a man who was, quote, persistent in ogling Julie. During the scuffle, August picked up a bottle on a nearby table, striking his opponent on the head with it and knocking him unconscious. August was arrested on the spot. Before he stepped out of the restaurant, he looked back for Julie one last time, only to find her weeping in a corner. He said, She did not seem aware of my presence, so I turned sadly and departed. Little did August know, he would never see Julie again. Of course, this telling of why August was arrested the night before the eruption should be taken with a grain of salt, since he, and he alone, would be the only one who lived to tell the tale. August was a known troublemaker about town. To teach the repeat offender a lesson, Saint-Pierre police threw him in solitary confinement after he was arrested. That single-cell, bomb-proof room that's partially built underground and surrounded by stone that I mentioned earlier. August awoke in the morning to even more trembling and muffled thunder, and the earth below him started to shift. It was morning, but as light started to disappear, August heard feet trampling and scurrying past him. He was confused and blind in the dark. Then a sudden wave of incomprehensible heat filled the air of his cell like an invisible fire. He said, quote, It was everywhere, from wall to wall, from floor to roof, in my eyes, my nostrils, my mouth, and my lungs, on all parts of my body close and uncovered, a dry, scorching, flameless fire, hotter than the blaze of any furnace. Still trapped in his cell, August heard the crashes and roars of buildings tumbling down around him, followed by the searing pain of hot, molten lava seeping into the cracks of his tomb-like cell. His last thought, before the world went dark, was this. Would my jealousy lose me love, home, friends, liberty, good name, everything? A pungent odor of sulfur overpowered him. He still couldn't fathom what was happening just outside his prison door. Three minutes is all it took. Just three minutes to eradicate the entire city of Saint-Pierre. Once the fire and heat subsided, August came in and out of consciousness as the world around him burned. When he was awake, he was met with extreme thirst and could now make out some light, which helped him discern night from day. Four days passed until August was rescued from his half-subterranean bunker. Alive but badly burned, his skin was blistered on his arms, back, and legs, and his lungs and throat were scorched from the ash, rock, and gases that seeped into his cell from the narrow slit on the door. But nothing would sting like the realization that everything you knew and everyone you loved had perished. August spent several months recovering from his injuries. He was pardoned for his crimes and was asked to join the Barnum and Bailey Traveling Circus in America as a living relic called the man who lived through Doomsday. August now went by the stage name Ludger Silbaris. 
as part of the traveling act called The Greatest Show on Earth, Ludger was the first Black man to star in the circus's segregated show, where he recounted the horrors of the day hell came to Earth. He died in 1929 of natural causes at the age of 54. Ludger's cell is one of the only original structures from 1902 still standing today and is a popular tourist attraction in Saint-Pierre. The Paris of the Caribbean was never rebuilt to its former glory and is home to only a few thousand residents. Montpellier remains very active to this day and will likely erupt once again. For the people of Saint-Pierre, their world ended in fire. And as for Auguste's jealousy and desire, it did cost him love, a home, friends, liberty, a good name. But it also spared him his life. So, what do you think? Do you favor fire, or would ice suffice? And do you agree that life will always find a way. Thank you for joining the Bygone Society show, where we chronicle the strange and forgotten corners of history. You can learn more about the society in each episode by following us on Instagram at the Bygone Society Show and by heading over to thebygonesocietyshow.com. Have a story idea? Send me an email at thebygonesocietyshow at gmail.com. That's thebygonesocietyshow at gmail.com. From your gracious and ghoulish host, thanks for listening. <laughs>